The NFL's bizarro season continues, with weekly upsets providing unprecedented parity and some genuinely unforeseen placements in the standings. But perhaps no team has defied expectations quite like the Seattle Seahawks, who amid all the chaos have quietly won four straight games. Joining us to break down how we got here and what we can expect moving forward is Seahawks beat reporter Corbin Smith. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and today I am without my acclaimed director, Mike Barwin. So your boy is pulling double duty on the boards and the mic. But fear not, Mike will be back next week. In the meantime, there's a lot of exciting stuff to get to. And that's because the Seahawks kicked another team's ass this week. That gives them four straight wins by 10-plus points. Their latest victim was the Arizona Cardinals, who they've now beaten twice during the hot streak, and that's lifted Seattle to 6-3 and three on the season. As a result, the Seahawks find themselves as the number three seed in the NFC if the playoffs were to start today. And I'm not sure even the most bullish preseason prognostications had this in their range of outcomes. So sitting down with me to discuss how we got here, how real it is, and what's ahead is Seahawks reporter and host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Mr. Corbin Smith. Corbin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Jackson. Appreciate it. Oh, of course, man. I know today's been a crazy one for you, huh? Traveling back from Phoenix and getting caught up on work. You know, what's you know, that, don't, get me, like? don't get me started with the airlines, <laughs> because today would have been a completely normal day if not for being stuck in LAX for 11 hours. And you would have been laughing at the guy behind me that decided to uh, light up a cigarette about an hour before our plane was supposed to take off and that was after seven delays so i can't begrudge a guy a smoke after all of that (laughs) well let's jump right into this cardinals game you know as i thought back through that one while i was writing the article one theme kind of stood out to me more than anything else and i'm curious to get your thoughts on it since you've had a chance to chat with some of the players but for most of this win streak the seahawks have just kind of gotten on schedule early and then leveraged that throughout the remainder of the game kind of how like a poker player who's won some early hands uses his or her chip stack to lean on their opponents. But in this one, the Seahawks got off to kind of a janky start. Uh, they only scored three points on their first four possessions. They gave up Arizona's first first quarter touchdown of the season, but they never wilted. They they never panicked. I mean, even after Geno threw that terrible pick six, they just stuck to the plan and they closed out the game with three consecutive touchdown drives. Yeah, I think that's really the difference between this team and last year's team is that killer instinct. The shark is able to smell the blood in the water and actually take advantage of it. How many games last year was this football team in a position to win in the second half and they couldn't get third down conversions? They couldn't sustain drives. This team has been a top five team in the league in both of those areas and they had that 10-plus-minute drive against the Chargers a few weeks ago. That was a defining drive in this season because we just rarely ever saw that the last three or four years. I mean, you can make an argument. We didn't see a lot of that in Russell Wilson's career here in Seattle. They just don't – they never really got those sustained long drives together. And some of it was because the Seahawks were so good at scoring quick with long touchdowns. But yeah. they also had so many three and outs. And oh. we've seen a major decline in that with Geno Smith at quarterback – and the weapons he's got around him, the way he's distributing the football to him. I mean, they converted on seven of their last eight third downs on Sunday, and not all of those were like third and one, third and two opportunities. One of those plays, it was third and 12, and Geno Smith ripped. I I don't know that I've seen him throw a ball harder than that one. Just a laser to Tyler Lockett. I said the exact same thing in the article this week. I think that was the fastest I've ever seen Gino throw a ball. It was like he was pissed about that pick six on that one. Yeah, he reeled back that. That was a 102-mile-an-hour fastball coming from (laughs) Munoz. I mean, he just flung that thing in there. Tyler Lockett then gets planted. That might not be called a penalty if the throw wasn't so darn hard. I mean, it made it look like the guy absolutely blasted Tyler Lockett, and I thought it was a clean hit. But in real time, I I could see why a ref would call that, though. Of of Uh, course. And just the way that he he just flung that in there. And there was another throw that he made on a third down. I think it was third and seven where he was getting hit by Charles Cross, who'd been pushed into him, and he's (laughs) off-platform, 
three guys converging in coverage and Noah Fanny still snuck it in there. Uh, those are the kind of throws that he's making, particularly on third down. And Seattle feels like they can move the chains anytime they have third down right now. They, they could have got a third and 15. Tyler Lockett went down, whether you agreed with that tactic sure, or sure. not. Uh, I don't know that he would have got the first down anyway, but they got close. I mean, they are consistently moving the chains in those situations, and that really is the difference between this team and last year's team. They're finishing getting first downs. They're finishing drives. You scored three touchdowns in a row to end the game like that. That just, it, not only is it demoralizing for the home team, I mean, I just felt like Geno, Ken Walker, the offensive line, especially Damian Lewis, some of the blocks he was making, they ripped the soul out of the Cardinals and just threw it into the ground is what they did. And even when the Cardinals thought they had an answer, nope, 51-yard pass play to Noah Fant. We're not going to run the ball right at you. We'll, we'll oh, that was so good, man. It, just, it, just... It, was, it was just, you know, and it was a little bit of a change-up from what we've seen from them in the past from coaching standpoint. They're like, no, yes. we're going to go win this game right now. We're not going to even give the Cardinals a chance to win this. And so it's that killer instinct. I think it's permeating throughout the entire team, and it goes from the coaching staff and Geno Smith down to everybody else. You know, you mentioned two things in there that I want to circle back to real quick. One, you did mention Tyler Lockett going down early on that uh, third down. It was, you know, third and 15. He got about 13 yards and just slid to a stop, gave himself up. And, you know, my first thought was, okay, you know, maybe that was just like a brain fart. Rare for Lockett, but whatever. And then I started to think about, like, he's just giving himself up on almost every single catch this year. He's just not going to take any hits. And that became kind of a little manufactured mini outrage on Twitter over the week, but it did get me thinking, you know, you got Tyler Lockett, he's 30 years old. He's like five, three, 135 pounds. And <laughs> I'm a smaller guy. I, I, I'm okay. You know, the, the, the football guy in me is like fight for the extra yards and all that stuff. I just much rather have him on the field. I almost have like no problem. It's kind of like, damn it, Tyler. And then move on. But there's some folks out there who, who don't like seeing him go down before contact. Yeah, and I've brought it up a few times because there have been some times this year where it felt like, man, if he just would have fought a little bit to get that extra yard, you move the chains, whatever. But in the scheme of things, third and 13, or it was actually third and 15, that kind of a play, if it was the fourth quarter, it's different. But you're in the middle of the game. It's still early enough. You know, I I don't have any problem with him going down there because the last thing you want is him getting concussed or getting his leg injured or something because he gets blasted. You know, that's, that's exactly you it. pick and choose your times to do that, especially when you're getting to be a little bit older player. And so I don't blame Lockett for roasting people on Twitter about that. And yeah. you know what? He took that shot on that other reception. It's not well, like he doesn't it. take some big hits that's sometimes. Just I yes. just think he's trying to protect himself. And I guess who could blame him? You know, he's totally. better. He's better for this team when he's on the field and he's healthy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I understand why some fans might be upset about it, but you know, survival really matters in the NFL, especially when you're a receiver his size. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you told me right now that Tyler Lockett wasn't going to get tackled one more time for the rest of the year, could I live with what that meant? And I would say yes, absolutely. Because if this team is going to capitalize on the promise that it's showing, Tyler Lockett has to be there. He has to be a big part of it. The other thing that you mentioned that I want to chat with you about is you talked about a different approach at the end of the game from the coaching staff. And we're seeing that throughout the games. We're seeing more aggression on fourth down in the middle of the field. We're seeing better timeout usage. We are seeing aggression when they have a lead late. It's like one of the big frustrations for me is it's felt like the team has been very content to try and win by one score. And I think you're just introducing so much variability when you approach the game that way. But, for the last four games, they've gotten a lead and then they've just played add on. I mean, they are just stacking points in the fourth quarter of every game. I mean, even including the Saints loss, going all the way back to the win against the Lions. I mean, they're scoring a shit ton of points in the fourth quarter, which just makes it so hard for teams to get back in it. And that is a credit, you know, on the last show, I had to deliver a little bit of a mea culpa. I've been hard on Pete Carroll the last few years, and I do think some of it was warranted three, four years ago, but he is showing that he has so much faith in this offense, and he looks like an old dog willing to learn new tricks, and that's all I ask from a coach. I'm I'm really impressed by it. 
So I'm just going to throw a take here. I actually haven't even brought this up on my own podcast, but th- <laughs> this is kind of where I'm at at this point. Um, and I'm not looking to take parting shots at Russell Wilson because he had a fantastic 10 years in Seattle. He sure did. But the more that I look at the way Pete Carroll managed games throughout Russell's 10 years, some of it early on was because of how dominant their defense was. And they could be conservative like that because you knew your defense was going to go out and get the job done. The last few years, they haven't had a defense like that. But you know the struggles that Russell Wilson had on third down consistently in his career. Why would you go for it more on fourth down when he hasn't been able to do that? And how many times, I'm just thinking the play that was defining to me end of last year, the sack that Russell took on third down in the game against the Bears, that game should have been a win. And you could see the body language and the screaming from Dwayne Brown in the field back towards number three, like, what are you doing? Those kind of plays, I think that had a lot to do, a lot more than people realize with Pete Carroll's conservative approach on the offensive side of the football. And I think now we're seeing what it looks like when he, he has a quarterback that he trusts more to handle situations like that. I truly believe he trusts Geno Smith more to handle those situations because one, he'll throw to the middle of the field consistently. And two, man, does he love throwing to his tight ends and as a Seahawks fan, <laughs> yeah. Jackson, you, you got to be excited seeing these tight ends finally being utilized. Totally. Shane Waldron's like, my whole playbook is open. Finally. My, and well, that's just and I think you're seeing more confidence from him because of the quarterback there. They'll never say it quite that way. Right. But they'll spin it under the radar that way. No, Mike and I are big believers in getting the layups, especially early in the game. And you see Gino hammers the tight ends in the first quarter. I mean, it is a part of the script. And if you go back and look at the Rams offense when Waldron was there, Gerald Everett and Tyler Higby were very big parts of that offense. And when you have multiple tight ends who are serviceable blockers, then that's what opens up the playbook, right? Because if you've got someone out there that you don't, you know, if you see him out there, you know that he's running, he's running a route, you know, or he's only going to block because he can't run a route. Uh, Then you're tipping your hand on the plays and Seattle's got three guys out there who can block and who can catch. And then one in Noah Fant that actually has some game-breaking ability. I mean, yes, he was open on that slip screen in the fourth quarter, but how many tight ends in this league are turning that into a 51-yard gain? I mean, a field-flipping base. Yeah, basically like end-the-game type of play instead of just getting a first down there. And, and that, to me, is really encouraging because one of the hardest things to find in football, just from a talent acquisition standpoint, but also for making it fit under the cap is a really dangerous third option, right? I mean, the Bengals have a great one in Tyler Boyd. And then after that, there just aren't a lot of third receivers that you're scared of. And what the Seahawks are doing is creating that in aggregate with Will Disley, Colby Parkinson, and Noah Fant. They don't need one of those guys to be an 800, 900 yard receiver, but the three of them are absolutely going to do that. And the fact that you can take that third option and have two of those guys out on the field at the same time, sometimes three, then defenses don't even know which one of those is going to be the third option, right? So there is just so many more options to your point at Shane Waldron's fingertips because they've got a guy who will look at the wristband and go through his reads and make the play the way the coaches want to call it. It's just it's got to be very refreshing, and it is a credit to Pete Carroll and the staff. Yeah, and I'm not going to get too deep on the wristband thing because there's plenty of good quarterbacks out there that don't do that. Absolutely. And Russell did win a lot of games. I don't even think Pete was necessarily taking a shot. I don't think so that. either. We're, I know one thing One of, thing we're terrible at is as just as a collective Seahawks Twitter, uh, whatever, is making everything with this season about Russ. But I think that's... That's a disservice to how well Gino is playing right now. Yeah, I think it is. And that was really what Pete was trying to do there, is he was trying to showcase the confidence that the coaching staff and the rest of the team has in Geno Smith. I don't think, there have been some things he has said that were clearly some underhanded shots. Russell (laughs) Wilson, I mean, he could be petty at times. Pete's built that way. But I don't think he was being that way in that instance. Uh, that that just struck me as being much more positive and you know displaying the confidence that he has in Geno Smith than taking a shot at Russell. But of course, there were some reporters on the other side of the aisle in, in Denver that just had to mention that to Russ today. And of course, he had to take a shot back when I don't even think there was an initial shot. Nonetheless, uh, yeah, 
Gino is just playing within the confines of this offense. He is beyond comfortable in what Shane Waldron is asking him to do. And you mentioned the timeout management. I think that is where the wristband is coming into play because they're they're snapping the ball a lot of times only a few seconds before the play clock expires. But it's so different than... I'll go back to that play in that Rams wildcard game a couple years ago that everybody was talking about Brian Schottenheimer and Pete Carroll arguing about what play they're going to run. And then they had to blow a timeout. And yep. that was something we consistently saw. And I think now we're what we're learning is a lot of that had to do with Russell Wilson, how long it took him to get the play up to the line. And they yeah. didn't have the time to look over the defense and make the adjustments they need to. Gino has been masterful at that. He's getting enough time up at the line of scrimmage that he can look over the defense. Like the audible that he called to get Rashad Penny's touchdown run in Detroit. Uh, there was another one that he audible to that was a direct snap uh, that went to the running back, and then he did a great acting job on it, uh, audible that. There's a bunch of others out there, but his pre-snap ability has been a game changer for the Seahawks, and it's really another thing that's opened up this entire playbook. You can't do that, though, if you're getting up at the line of scrimmage with six seconds to go on the play clock consistently. They're not doing that right now. Yeah, well, and it opens up. It gives you time to run motion. You know, one of my frustrations with this team over the last number of years is they don't do a lot of pre-snap motion and that's just an easy way to get defenses to tip their hand or give the quarterback a chance to identify some soft spots but you're right you can't do that when you're breaking the huddle with 12 seconds and everyone's set at eight seconds there's just only so much that you can do and now they're getting out of the huddle with 18 20 26 seconds left on the play clock and they're able to get up there and go through all of their checks and do all of that stuff and then sometimes you know you see it all the time every single team deals with this where you're watching them get lined up and one of the receivers the running backs isn't sure where he's supposed to be right and they're they're motioning at people and trying to figure out and one of the others receiver will be like hey move up to the line or the quarterback's like hey you're supposed to be on this side you see that half a dozen times from every single team in the nfl every single game and when you're up there and there's only five seconds left on the play clock, it turns into chaos. If, if the quarterback is having to get everyone where they're supposed to be, if you got 20 seconds, you got all the time in the world to get that stuff figured out. So, you know, not, not only is it more efficacious on the field, give them more options for the coaching staff. That's the kind of stuff that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you're with these players, but that's the kind of stuff that makes this Geno's team. I mean, the players have to be seeing that the confidence that the players have in Gino. Talk to me about that. Well, just look at that pick six that he threw the other day and the way that the entire team followed his lead. And you could hear universally the players talking in the locker room about this. And obviously, I mean, if they would have lost the game, then the vibe is going to be different in the locker room, but they didn't, they went out and had three straight touchdown drives. Gino's like, all right, short-term memory amnesia. It's gone. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to lead my team down the field. I'm going to go six for seven and I'm going to throw a touchdown and we're going to retake the lead. And it's stuff like that. We have seen that resiliency. I mean, you've got to have resiliency to be in quarterback purgatory for seven years and then come back and play this well. I mean, he is hardwired with resiliency and his teammates are feeding off that. His coaches are feeding off of that. I think even the media is feeding off it a little no bit. No question. I mean, no question. Gino is a little bit, uh, you know, he's a little bit of a refreshment for the media with the way that he carries himself and stuff. And I mean, you know, sometimes he comes after reporters on Twitter. I mean, he certainly never saw Russ. I know. That. No, so, I know. You know, These, I'm glad you mentioned it. Cause I was thinking about bringing it up. I'm glad you mentioned it. So uh, for those who aren't aware, Greg Bell, who I think just does an amazing job uh, covering this team tweeted out about how, well, what was it? How Gino went from a high draft pick to being unsigned to having his face on the side of a building in Munich. And Gino quote tweeted, he's like, I was never unsigned. <laughs> it's like the smallest possible slight in a tweet from a very appreciative man about what he's done. He's like, uh-uh, I am not tolerating any perceived in, slander. In on Gino's this. defense, I, I don't think that Greg, and I haven't had a chance to talk to Greg about this, but... um <laughs> that I, when he put shake my head on there, um, mm-hmm. I don't think it was interpreted the way that it needed to be interpreted. So, well, and it, Greg and Greg said as much afterwards that he, yeah, and he, he did. He, yeah. He and he, that, I'm know. sure Greg's just laughing about it now. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just social media, I'm sure. but yeah. I'm sure, but, I, but my point is, you know, going back to what I was saying, you know, I just feel like 
the entire organization has kind of rallied around Gino, and then he has awarded them for that by playing like an MVP. I mean, I've had plenty of people reading my stuff recently saying, I don't know how you can throw him in an MVP race. How can you not put him in the MVP race? Sure. He's among the league leaders in touchdown passes. He's completing over 73% of his passes. And he, it's not like this dude is just dumping it off to Ken Walker the third every single this play. This isn't Jimmy Garoppolo completing 70% of his passes. No, he's taking, he arguably is making the hardest passes look consistently easy of any quarter in the NFL. And I'm including Patrick Mahomes in that. You look at the throws. There's a reason his completion above expectation is so much higher than every quarterback in the NFL. Because he is making difficult throws. I mentioned the one where Cross was pushed into him and he's knocked off platform. Like, I don't think people watching realize just how darn difficult of a throw that was, <laughs> especially with three defenders that were zooming in on Noah Fant there. He had to put that right on the money and throw it with zip, and he did it on one leg. Like, that's the kind of arm talent and confidence that we are seeing when the play looks like it's breaking down, he doesn't panic and he gets rid of the football and he's accurate. He, he throws the ball with zip and he knows how to deliver where he's got to put it at. And that's just, it's been remarkable. I mean, I was one of the few people that thought Gino was going to win the job. Uh, a lot of beat reporters thought mm-hmm. Drew Locke was going to win it. I thought this was Gino's job from day one, but if you would have told me he was doing this back in April and May, when I was predicting that, <laughs> I would have just laughed and probably hung up the phone to be yeah, honest. Right. Right. He's I just mean, been so much better than I ever could have imagined. And the thing is, there's been some missed opportunities there. I still think he can get better than what he's played. That's, that's a wild thought. I mean, it, it is safe to say that Gino has absolutely obliterated expectations of him this season. He's definitely one of the biggest reasons this team is six and three, but I also want to get your thoughts on this defense. I mean, that side of the ball has transformed over the last month after spending their first five games looking totally discombobulated. Now they're playing as well as anyone. They've recorded 20 sacks during their four-game win streak. They're forcing turnovers with regularity. Quite frankly, these are things we haven't seen from this team in a very long time. Yeah, I think it just boils down to some of the adjustments that they made after that fifth game, and they were simple ones. I mean, I think that they wanted, Clint Hurt and Pete Carroll wanted this to be a more traditional-looking 3-4, a hybrid 3-4 that is similar to Vic Fangio's scheme, and that means that your nose tackle and your two defensive tackles, your three tacks or four eyes, have to be able to read and react and two-gap. But personnel-wise, the Seahawks don't have the team to necessarily run that. Shelby Harris is the one three-tech that they have that's natural at that from all his time playing for Vic Fangio. But Puna Ford is an athletic penetrator. Miles Adams, when he plays, is an athletic penetrator. Quentin Jefferson is an athletic penetrator. Brian Monet, for 340-plus pounds, he's a penetrator. He likes to get back into the backfield. This group is built to be an attacking defensive line. And once they let them get back to that, while still staying within the confines of their scheme, going back to running more of their bear sets up front, uh, some tight fronts mixed in there, but they're doing a lot more one-gapping. And really, the improved play up front, it has permeated all the way to the back half of the defense. Everybody's playing better. The secondary, I thought, was already playing fairly well, and they just weren't getting helped by the pass rush. But now that pass rush is getting home, inside out, a Chen and Wosu's playing like an all pro. I'm just going to say this though, Jackson, I think the biggest difference for this defense, and I'm saying this is somebody that thought Josh Jones absolutely deserved to start coming out of training camp. Josh Jones was the better player between him and Ryan Neal in training camp before Neal got hurt. I thought there might be a chance Neal even got cut just because the depth that they had. Not that I don't like Ryan Neal. I've always been a big fan of how he plays. It's just kind of one of those, well, we have so many riches at this position. What do we do? But he overcomes his high ankle sprain. I think number 26 is the reason, is the biggest, most instrumental reason totally this defense with you. has turned it around. I think if I was voting for all pro safeties right now, he'd be on a second team. Ryan Neal would. That's how well he's playing. Just look at the last four games, Jackson. He's, I don't know his side there, of man. football focus is grades, but he's the number one graded safety in that span. He's the only player wow. in the entire NFL since week six that has a sack, an interception, three tackles for loss, four pass, passes defensed, and two forced fumbles. He's the only dude in the entire league that's done that. And he hasn't given up a touchdown in coverage. His passer rating against is under 40 in those four games. Um, he is running around the field like his hair's on fire every single play. And you can't tell me that every other guy in that defense isn't watching what he's doing and 
and it's immediate, immediately rubbing off on their play positively. He, Man. to me, has been the biggest catalyst for this improvement. And I'm not saying that Jamal Adams' future is in question, but I'm saying Jamal Adams' future might be in question because he's playing that well. Even if Adams is healthy next year, you've got to have Ryan Neal on the field. He's got to be part of your future plans, the way that he plays. And and I like Jamal Adams, and I think he's a fantastic player. I expect they're both going to be there, but you got to find a way to get 26 out Well, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, gives we were talking about options for the coaches on the offensive side. I mean, you add an, a weapon. I, I almost hate calling Jamal Adams a safety because he doesn't play safety the way we tend to think a safety should play. I see him as kind of a defensive weapon, the same way like a, a, a Buda Baker might be or a Shaq Thompson. And I, I wonder what they do with him when he gets back because uh, I I think that it can be a, uh, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts type of situation and finding ways to get them both on the field in the same way. And just, just having the depth, right? If Quandre were to get hurt or one of those two guys were to get hurt again, you know, it's it's a great problem to have. But you're right. There is an absolute ripple effect. I'm glad you mentioned in Wosu. How could you not? The guy is single-handedly stopping scoring drives every single game. He's getting sacks at big moments. It's, you know, one of the things that great pass rushers do is win in the fourth quarter because they're so good and they have so much utility that they can set their blockers up, right? And you you hear the great ones talk about this all the time. They'll attack one shoulder over and over and over again because they are setting up a move back to the other side or something, you know, not showing them the the spin move for three quarters and then hitting them with it when when it's late and Seattle just hasn't had the guys who are able to do that and Wosu is just setting these dudes up like bowling pins all game long and then dominating in the second half and it's I mean he's the best pass rusher this team has had since Cliff Averill and we saw how an already very good defense became elite once they added Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill and got the pressure up front, that Shelby Harris has kind of done that inside. Oh, Shelby too. Harris, man, we haven't even mentioned him. He's the other one, and, yeah. and this is why the Russell Wilson trade. Sorry for interrupting you, but you got me. Not, got me wrong. Not at all. No, go. Uh, Shelby Harris has been doing the same thing as Uchenna Nuosu, just on the inside in the fourth quarter of games. He has been setting dudes up, and and he knew Billy Price was playing center and not Rodney <laughs> Hudson. And I loved watching the All-22 film yesterday morning, and I was stuck in the airport, but that kind of made it go by faster. But he was purposely hard slanting right at Billy Price in the fourth quarter after he had been setting that up all game, and he made, I mean, Price is a former first-rounder that's just been awful with every team he's been with, and Got by him for a sack. Another play that he should have had a second sack. Kyler Murray got away from him, but then another teammate came in and stopped in the line of scrimmage. And he has just been so damn disruptive. But he does the same thing. He attacks certain shoulder for a good chunk of the game. And then you see the veteran savvy. I am going to find this weak point in the offensive line, and I'm going to take advantage of it. There's been some freelancing going on in the interior because the Seahawks trust Shelby Harris is going to get there. And that's what he's been doing. That's so cool, man. Yeah. And, you know, it, it feels like this defense has a personality now, which I never really felt like they did with Ken Norton Jr. And and maybe that's not a Norton issue. Maybe it was just personnel or game flow or whatever. But something has changed. It has coincided with Clint Hurt, Sean Desai taking over this defense. And, you know, we've talked about the pass rush. That's obviously been excellent. Not all of these sacks are happening in two seconds. A lot of them are because this secondary, we talked about the safeties, but these corners, man, I mean, this, I, I hate how easily we toss around comparisons to all-time greats when someone shows up and starts playing well, right? Because the NFL is a league of adjustments. They'll figure out your weaknesses, all of that stuff. But man, what we are seeing from Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant already might be the thing I'm most excited about with this. You team. need to add Mike Jackson to that group. Amen. <laughs> I, yeah. He's the one that I honestly, if there's a guy that isn't getting the attention he deserves from this team, because I feel like Ryan Neal now is getting that the way he's been playing. But Mike Jackson, man, I mean, he just the dude is just he's a street dog, man. I mean, he always he reminds is ready me to of fight. Browner. He's always ready to. Spawn. He reminds me of Brandon Browner. Yeah. 
he's kind of, I mean, he's not the same size, but he's kind of got not. a same playing style and he gets chippy with dudes. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's really fun to watch. He gets after guys, but you know, I get the Richard Sherman comparisons with Tariq Woolen because they were both receivers, moved a corner and blah, 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 all that stuff. But you can't compare Tariq Woolen to anyone. There has, there's never been an athlete of his size, his speed, his length that's played the quarterback position in NFL history. There's never been a dude like that. So we need to stop with the comparisons. I mean, you can go ahead and throw out some of the Sherm stuff. And yeah, Sherm's been coaching him up, you know, in freelancing, whatever. Sure. Uh, but Richard Sherman would have died to have the athletic ability oh. that Tariq Woolen has. And Tariq oh, Woolen is six foot four. I, w- I will never get over the play he made in Detroit where he was covering Hawkinson, who was having a huge game out of the left slot and Hawkinson ran up, took one step to the left and then cut across the field hard. And Tariq was a couple of steps behind him. Goff rolled right through what looked like it was going to be an easy eight yard completion. And from out of the screen, Woolen with Olympic speed and crazy length sneaks in front, snags the pass. I mean, he was just in the end zone a second later, you know, it was a 30, 40 yard return or whatever it was. It was like, it was it was a touchdown the second he got his hands on it. And and you're right. I mean, I I was trying to think to myself as you were saying that, surely I can think of a corner with that size and speed. Surely there's been somebody. Nothing's coming to mind, man. No, it's not just a combine phenomenon, which by that metric, there's never been a guy to combine like him. Uh, but there's there just hasn't been. There has not been a six four corner that runs four two six forty and has that length, and seeing how quickly he's taken to the technique stuff and how much he's improved as a tackler, I mean, that's what's scary is this dude is still extremely raw. And I I know people might not be seeing that on the field, but he still is very raw. And I was not surprised by that pick in Detroit because he made a pick against Drew Locke in practice. And, you know, a lot of people were laughing when they saw the tweets, like, eh, Tariq Woolen picks off Drew Locke. Like, Drew Locke made a good read. And Tariq Woolen's just like, I'm Reek the Freak, and I turn good reads into bad reads. That's what he does. And he jumped the route in the middle of the field. And like, Pete Carroll was talking out of practice, like, that's a special play. You just don't see that. And then he goes out and does it in a game, too. So, yeah, there's a reason why Kyler Murray only targeted him one time when DeAndre Hopkins was against him. Because quarterbacks are staying away now because they know it's how amazing. good this dude is. I mean, his play on on Hopkins on that third and four late when the Chargers were within a score and were driving, and I think it was right after they had downed the punt on like the three-yard line. They had this long drive going, and then Woolen just, I mean, he mirrored Hopkins' in route on that. I mean, you, you watch the replay, and it's like his steps were, like his feet were attached by an iron rod to Hopkins' feet. Every step that Hopkins made, Tariq mirrored it perfectly and then just slapped his arm in front to end the drive. And I'm like, that's that's like veteran shit right there. Yeah, he's doing stuff. And, and it's crazy because he'd be the first to tell you, like, I'm still learning a ton about this yeah. game. But he's playing. He's just so, he's such, he's such a natural football player. Um, and you can say that about Mike Jackson on the other side. Mike Jackson doesn't have the physical tools that Tariq Woolen does, but he's got the grit. He's got the physicality. He's got athletic traits. It's not like he's a slouch. It's just Tariq Woolen is one of one. Uh, And then Kobe Bryant is the polar opposite. Kobe Bryant had a three-cone drill time that was not much faster than one of the undrafted rookie guards the Seahawks signed in free agency (laughs) that didn't end up making the team. Uh, he was not known for his athleticism coming out, but he looks so much faster and quicker on the field. He's one of those kind of guys, and in part because his instincts make him faster. And that has really helped him mesh with this new position. He'd never played the slot, really, before the Seahawks moved him there. You could sense that the first few games, but he's a quick learner, a quick study. And now, aside from the tackling, that is still the one area he must get much more consistent at. He's leaving yes. too many tackles on the field, but yep. he is Charles Tillman 2.0. I mean, Peanut's out there just punching the ball out of yeah. his hands. He should yes. have had his fifth. I still think that was a fumble the other day, personally. Um, I-, I was surprised they overturned that. But this guy seems like he's punching the ball at every single game. He's getting better in coverage in the slot. He's getting more comfortable. So 
yeah, you got two young corners there. You add Trey Brown to the mix. The thing is, I don't know where Trey Brown plays right now. You we haven't even bench- seen Artie Burns yet. <laughs> yeah, you can't bench Mike Jackson right now. I mean, I Mike Jackson's playing like he should be a starter. So I thought Sidney Jones was playing well, and they don't have room for him. Yeah, it's a good problem to have. Let's yes, just put it absolutely. That and they're going to give Trey his chances to get that job back. But like, sure. you know, maybe a month ago you were thinking, eh, Mike Jackson's keeping the seat warm for Trey Brown. I don't know that now at this point. Yeah. I mean, Trey Brown's going to have to come in and just be downright nasty to get yeah. that job yeah. back. Or Mike Jackson's going to have to fall flat a couple games. And nothing sure. I've seen in the field suggests that's going to happen. So There's one more guy I want to talk about before we get to the Bucks game. And that is the new apple of my eye. I mean, no one's ever overtaken DK for me, I don't think. But Ken Walker the third man. I mean, his fans and folks who follow the team, we obviously love him. He's just a beautiful runner. He can win in so many ways. But I got to think that he's providing a juice that the locker room is responding to. You know, we, we talk about on the show that there are benefits to running the ball well that don't show up in the box score, right? Yeah, you're EPA might be lower on run plays and all that kind of stuff. But a 15-yard run does a lot different things to the sideline than a 15-yard pass completion does. You know, And when you bring Ken Walker out of the bullpen in the fourth quarter, he has iced every single game in this win streak. It's like inevitable that Ken Walker is going to get a late touchdown. That's the kind of stuff that makes me think, Man, these guys got to look at this kid as something special. Am I wrong there? No, you're not. I mean, Mel Tucker is probably thinking, man, I need to get him back to Michigan State because, you know, and thank God he got me this big contract because <laughs> we joke about that in the media room. Like, that, that is the Ken Walker contract that Mel Tucker got. He single-handedly carried that Michigan State team, and then he leaves, and then they're a below 500 team in the Big Ten. Uh, th- this kid is a dynamic talent, and – I was one of the few, and I'm biased because I was a running back and I coached running back. So I obviously view the position much more valuable. Well, tell, tell me about it. Give give us your expertise on Ken Walker and, and what he does that's different than other even highly touted NFL running backs coming out of college. I think in terms of running the football that he's as, a, as complete of a package. And I made this comparison the other day, and I, got, I had some people batting some eyes. And, you know, the thing is most of them have no reason to bat an eye because they probably didn't even ever see the guy play. But – I've watched I've watched highlights of him. I was obviously not alive when Gale Sayers was running the football, but sure. The thing that Ken Walker the third does that reminds me of Gale Sayers is he has that innate ability to stay on his feet when guys are coming flying at him. It looks like they're gonna get a big hit on him and he just they slip off of him. And he doesn't lose a beat with his speed. Right. And he right. did that in the first Cardinals game. There was a run where it, it almost looked like bowling pins falling off them. Like there's four or five defenders coming over and he didn't truck them. It's just, he's so rock solid in his lower body and he's got such great contact balance. He's going full speed and guys are just, and I could just hear the pins crashing, falling to the floor. And that is where I see a lot of parallels with Gale Sayers. I don't consider those guys to be the same back in a lot of different ways, but in that area, I see that rare contact balance and you nailed the it, acceleration man. and speed. And the other thing that I see, and I saw somebody else make this comparison. I'm not huge in comparisons in terms of one-to-one, but you can always see specific traits. But Maurice Jones-Drew is the other one that I see with Ken Walker the third. He's got that shorter, those thick lower, uh, that thick lower body. He's got that low center of gravity that allows him to be such a difficult guy to tackle and be able to change direction quickly and turn three-yard losses into two-yard gains. Those are probably my favorite runs by him, to be honest. There were some runs in that game a few weeks ago against the Giants that I had to go back and rewatch. and uh, my wife was like, why is this exciting to you? He didn't gain anything. I'm like, he could have lost three yards there, and he just has an ability to do that. Now, I will say one thing that he must improve upon. That is the pass protection. Yep. We have seen signs. There were a couple nice blitz pickups in the Giants game. He got rocked a few times, though, in this last Cardinals game. So if he really wants to take that next step, I think as a runner, he is the complete package. He's got the explosiveness to take the distance. We've seen that. He can break tackles. He can make guys miss. He's got incredible contact balance. Most of the time, his vision is great. He has occasionally a play, he gets outside. It's like you probably should have just cut it upfield. But he generally checks off all those boxes. It's the pass protection thing. And that is big in today's NFL. You can't do that 
it's tough. It's tough to be a feature back, but he's just so dang dynamic. Running the ball, it. he's a good receiver. Uh, yeah, th- this kid truly is special, and he, him, and uh, the Jets running back. I don't know why I'm spacing on his name. The one that just got hurt, um, Brees Hall. Hall. Those two and Damian Pierce. Uh, Damian Pierce was actually my favorite running back coming into this draft class. You know, we and, had Doug Farrar on during the draft, and he said the exact same thing. Yeah, and Damian Pierce has had a fantastic year on a really crappy football team. I mean, I would have been intrigued to see Damian Pierce in Seattle. I think he would be having some uh, really similar results, even though he's not quite the same kind of player. But my point is you had three elite running backs in my mind there that were all worthy of second-round picks, maybe even late first-round picks. Um, And there's a reason Dan Mullen doesn't have a job at Florida anymore, and Damian Pierce is one of those big reasons because – why was that dude not your workhorse running back? Like, yeah, that makes absolute no sense. But I digress. Yes, yeah, some running backs just matter. You know, uh, Damian Pierce reminds me a lot of Chris Carson in the way that he runs and his ability to get to the second level and, and do damage there. Ken Walker is like a stacked up Travis Etienne, man. He is that same ability to see the whole explode through it and then just vaporize a pursuit angle uh much like etn he he struggles with some of the past game responsibilities and we had chuck powell on uh the week before the first cardinals game right when walker was taking over the job in the wake of penny's injury and he was saying like yes this kid is amazing but he needs to learn where he needs to be like Chuck was very, very adamant about that point, and we are seeing some of it. But he's 21 years old. Like, he's going to be fine. What I want from my running back is the ability to, yes, hit the home run. There's so few that can actually do it. There's lots of guys who are fast enough to, but can you create that opportunity for yourself? Ken Walker can do that so, so well. And when it comes to the pass protection stuff, DJ Dallas and Travis Homer are great at that. And, and I'm totally okay. You know, we always want the most athletic guy out there on third down or second long, but you know, because those guys are said they're so trustworthy catching the ball though, too. Well, that's just it. And that's, and that's how you see guys like Rex Burkhead and Carlos Hyde and guys like that. D'Angelo Williams for a long time, they stay in the league forever because quarterbacks can trust them. You know, Rashad white is an extremely, tantalizing talent in Tampa Bay, which team Seattle's playing next. But Tom Brady wants Leonard Fournette out there because Leonard Fournette is going to catch every pass that's thrown his way. He's going to identify blitzes and he's going to, he's going to pick that guy up. Right. And so Ken Walker can get there, but man, what he is delivering in all the other aspects of being a running back and being uh, a hammer at the end of games, 10 out of 10, man, that's that's not something you can teach. That's, that's a mindset. And Ken Walker, the third has that. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about this Bucks game. So teams flying across. I think they flew today. Uh, go get acclimated in Germany and get ready for this game in Munich. Seahawks are trying to make it five in a row. Uh, but to do it, I mean, they're going to have to beat Tom Brady and Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And before the season, this looked like one of the toughest games on the schedule. But now Seattle enters this matchup with the record. That's two full games better than Tampa. <laughs> I mean, Tampa was universally considered one of the bona fide contenders in the NFC coming into the year. This is one of those games that you kind of go through the schedule. You just circle it as a loss. And to be fair, I mean, the public still sees it that way. Tampa Bay is a three-point favorite coming into this game, despite being four and five against a six and three Seahawks team on a neutral field. How do you think this Seahawks team stacks up against the Bucs? I think in a lot of areas, the Seahawks have the better roster. Seriously. Uh, what what areas do they not? The the area that concerns me the most. There's two areas that can, if I'm Pete Carroll and Shane Waldron and Clint Hurt, and I'm going to this game. The one big area, and I'm, say, I'm using the word big just because the guy you're dealing with is a massive human being. But Vita Vea in the middle. The pride <laughs> that of Washington. That guy's so awesome. That, that guy, guy is so rad. He... He is one of my man crushes to watch on Sundays. I absolutely love watching him play. He is, they list him at 350. There's no damn way that's all he weighs. He, he's a massive human being. And he's, there's not a lot of fat on that dude. Like he is just a big mountain of a man. And when he gets a center on skates and drives him back into the backfield, there's not much that's prettier to watch on all 22 film. And he's damn good at doing that. He's got six and a half sacks. He's He basically takes up two gaps as a run defender. Uh, he's an underrated athlete. 
that can split gaps. He can penetrate if he wants to. Or he can say, yeah, I just feel like sitting here and taking two dudes and stalemating and then everybody can come around and make tackles. But uh, he's just a monster. And that is going to be a major test for Austin Blythe and the guards for the Seahawks. Even though they've been playing a lot better, this is the kind of guy that worries me against Austin Blythe because he is an undersized center that relies more on technique and athleticism. That's only going to get you so far when Vita Vea decides, you know what, I feel like bull rushing right now. So that is the, that's the biggest issue to me. Are they going to be able to get their run game going? And are they going to be able to keep Vita Vea and Akeem Hicks is now back healthy? Are they going to be able to keep those big-bodied pass rushers? Because they are pass rushers, both of them. Are they going to be able to keep them away from Geno Smith long enough that he can get the football out to his playmakers? Because I like Seattle's tight ends, especially in this game. Tampa Bay is awful against tight ends. Another defense that can't stop them. Fourth most receptions given up to tight ends this year. On the outside, DK has a history of roasting Carlton Davis. Jamel Dean's had issues with Tyler Lockett when they played previously. So you would feel like the Seahawks have the matchup advantages out there. But it's not going to matter if Vita Vea is getting into the backfield and eating Geno Smith and they can't run the football. That matchup worries me immensely. How, how do you counterpunch that then? Well, I think there's two ways you can do it. You can try to get, you can try to mix in some doubles because I think they're going to have to be able to do that, getting a guard in to help out Austin Blythe. And I think the other thing, and we saw some of it last week against Arizona, Lecky Fotu plays quite a bit for them. And he's not the same player as Vita Vea, but a similar style player, not the same talent, but. I think mixing in some pulling guard stuff, whether it's power runs or mixing in some counters, that's Ken Walker III's favorite run play. He told us that after he was drafted, and they ran that a few times last week. I think getting a situation like that where you are moving your guards around and you are creating gaps doing that, I think that is how you run the football. This team is not as dominant defending the run as they have been the last two years. That doesn't mean that Vitavea is not playing well. But they're missing some guys. They're not playing as well at the other levels of the defense. And so I feel like those kind of gap runs, getting some pulling stuff. I think Damian Lewis absolutely loves that stuff. Let him get out in space and go blow somebody up and then Ken Walker third run behind him. I think that's a way that you can mitigate that. Getting the football out quickly. He's not a guy that's going to be getting pressures immediately on Geno Smith. So that's where the tight ends come into play. A lot of the quick passing game early that might be what opens up your deep balls to Metcalf and Lockett rather than the run game this week we haven't seen a lot of deep passing the last few weeks you know that's that's something that I'd like to see be a thing again you know we we saw it in some of their shootout games but you know over the last number of weeks DK Metcalf is just been a possession receiver I don't think Gino I just don't think Gino like he's not looking to do that necessarily and yeah I think that's a good thing, to be honest. Totally, you don't you don't want to force it, but uh, you know it's it. I, I will say, and this is me picking nits. They are winning. The offense is cruising. I am not saying they need to overhaul this or whatever, but it does feel like some meat is being left on the bone. I mean, you've got a, a player DK's caliber averaging nine yards a catch over a month long stretch, right? So I I am hoping, especially given his uh, track record against Carlton Davis, that they at least give him one or two shots downfield, try and make something happen. Yep. Yeah, and I think they have to. I, I think they're going to have to hit on a few big plays in this game. The key is going to be making sure that you have time. But the good news is you don't have to worry that uh, Shaquille Barrett is going to be chasing after him because he's done for the season for the Bucks. That was a huge loss for their defense. But that's the one matchup that really concerns me the most. And I think if you're looking from Seattle's defensive standpoint, it, it still has to just be number 12 back there because it's still Tom Brady. And of course. You're going against Jordan Brooks, who's in his first year as the linebacker that's got the play-calling helmet on. I mean, that is going to be a chess match there. Can Jordan Brooks stack up against a quarterback that has seen everything since he's been playing for 40 years? Are yeah. you going to be able to to match wits with him and make sure that your defense is in the right alignment, you make the right uh, audibles and whatever else needs to be made? That is going to be a crucial matchup there. I think Brooks can do it. Uh, but but that's always a hard task for a young linebacker when you got to deal with Tom Brady uh, on the other side of the field, especially with the weapons he has, even though it hasn't come together this year. He's still got weapons galore, and any given game they could erupt. So uh, I, I think that number 12, uh, the, the chess match, the mental aspect of the game is going to be big for the Seahawks defense. Yeah, you know, and one area of the game that I think Seattle can really dominate is their D-line against this offensive line. I mean, I think the Bucks are down to one opening day starter. They have 
the least effective run game, maybe in the history of the NFL right now. Um, you know, and, and that's not a slight on the talent of the runners. It's just, they're getting bodied up front and, you know, and as a result, they're also not able to pass the ball deep. I mean, they're, they just aren't throwing it deep and it's not because Tom Brady can't do it anymore. It's, he doesn't have time to, and he doesn't have the mobility to extend plays to let guys get downfield. I mean, Chris Godwin doesn't have a touchdown this year. Like that's, that's crazy, right? But Chris Godwin is one of those Stefan Diggs type of guys that if you give him four seconds, you're not covering him for four seconds, but he only has about two and a half right now. And if Seattle can keep that pressure on Tom Brady, I don't think they're going to need to score 40 to win this game. Yeah. This doesn't feel like this is a game that is going to have a ton of points necessarily to me. Cause I think the strength of this bucks team is still the defense, but they are certainly a unit that can have their share of trouble, especially if the offense is stagnant. So I'm not saying this is a game the Seahawks can't put points on the board, but I just feel like it's going to be a little more defensive. And for the Bucks, that interior offensive line, I mean, Marpet retires, and then Jensen injures his knee. Their other guard, Kappa, goes to the Bengals. I mean, their entire interior offensive line away from Shaq Mason, who they got from the Patriots. I mean, otherwise, that interior offensive line's been ravaged. They're down to, like, their 12th string guy at the uh, right guard position. It, it's yeah, just been they, brutal for them. Yeah. Uh, they had a rookie playing over there. Now he's hurt. I mean, it's it's been brutal. So Seattle, with their defensive tackles, the experience and talent they have, especially the way those guys have been playing since they went back to more of an attacking style, that should be a major advantage for Seattle's defensive line going into this game. And on the other side, the Buccaneers' defensive line might be thinking the same. Really? Whichever interior offensive line plays better, as simple as it sounds, that might be who wins this football game, yeah. to be honest yeah. with you. So I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to give me a number. How many points do the Seahawks need to score for you to feel 80% confident they're going to win the game? 25. Okay. Be awesome. If they and got and exactly that's because 25. the Bucs have only scored 23 or more one time this year. And I know that Tom Brady's quarterback in them. Maybe this is the game they erupt, but the way the Seahawks defense is playing 25 would be the number I'm comfortable. You get to that point. I think you get your win and you go back to the United States and uh, enjoy a week off. I like it. I, that, that sounds right to me. I mean, I think, I think if Seattle can put together four scoring drives, uh, let me put it this way. If Seattle can score three touchdowns, I'm feeling really good about this game. And, and I think they can. I mean, they're, they're doing that pretty much every game. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Seahawks would be the three seed in the NFC if the season ended today. Obviously, it doesn't. So what are your expectations for Seattle over the last eight weeks of this year? I picked him to win at most seven or eight games going into the season. Honestly, I was more optimistic than a lot of people were yep. in that projection. I mean, they had a five. Hey, I had, I had him for six. Under. So, yeah. So I was a lot more optimistic, but now, I mean, let's just put it this way, Jackson. And I'll just say this. Uh, we got our new locked on Seahawks and be coming out shortly after we uh, can't do wait this episode. So I'm going to be talking about this, but this game is truly a separator for the Seahawks here. If they win this game and move to 7-3 and three before the bye, just think about the second part of the schedule. Your home game against the 49ers. You play the Panthers at home. Four of your last five games are at Lumen Field. Almost the entire second half of the schedule is at Lumen Field. They've gotten to 6-3 and three playing on the road mostly. So if you can get to 7-3, and three, and then your next home game is the Raiders, who have really struggled this year, and then you got the Panthers, your games against the Rams, who knows how those are going to go, but the Rams have struggled this year. I mean, the schedule shapes up really well for you. If you lose this game and you're 6-4, and four, obviously it's not the end of the world. You're still going to be atop the division. But uh, this is definitely a game that would be really nice to have going into the bye week. And then you can feel good about the Seahawks maybe getting to 10, 11 wins. I mean, maybe even 12 because teams like the Raiders, who are supposed to be good, have been god-awful. So... <laughs> I know. So it's crazy. So, I can't believe I'm saying it, but it, it, it feels like it's not fluky saying that right now. With no, I know it. Right. I know it. It's, it's, it's crazy. Nine wins feels like the absolute floor at this point. And, and that would be with them going three and five the rest of the way. Uh, nothing about the way they've been playing for the last month indicates that they're going to do anything like that. Currently, six and three is great. It's made even better by the fact that the next best team in the NFC West is four and four. It's the 49ers. So my question to you, Corbin, does the rest of the NFC West suck? <laughs> Maybe. That's what that's what I'll say right now. Maybe. I I mean the Rams look horrible. They can't block anybody. And you know, that's what happens when Andrew Whitworth retires and you don't have any draft picks till the fifth round, and you do that every single year. Eventually that catches up with you. 
and feel like you can see it the most on the offensive line with their team. They've got some other issues, though. Matt Stafford, I'm sorry, that dude ain't healthy. That elbow, there's no way that elbow's healthy. And that's why what's going on with Josh Allen has to be pretty concerning for the Buffalo Bills, too. Uh, Those elbow injuries are nothing to scoff about. And so that's a concern. The Cardinals, I mean, that looks like a dumpster fire to me. I think oh, Kingsbury, are... I, I've been saying Kingsbury should have been fired the last couple of years. I do not think he's a good coach. I mean, he couldn't win in college with Patrick Mahomes as quarterback. <laughs> um, I just, I don't see how the dude got an NFL job to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Kyler Murray's body language. If I was an NFL player, that'd be the last quarterback in the league, including Aaron Rodgers, that I would want to play with. Um, he pouts about everything. Yes, so he he's incredibly, he's an incredibly talented player. Uh, but that is a major problem. The the body language, the attitude. Cliff's not so, the guy. If if Cliff hasn't hasn't shut that down yet, he's not the guy who is ever going to be able to. And I'm no, sure it's not I, for lack of effort. I just know. to me, the Seahawks, the 49ers right now are the two playoff caliber teams in this division. The Rams have not shown me anything to suggest that they are, even with some of the talent they still have. Now, if Stafford starts getting hot and they find a way to protect him a little better, it's still a team that could turn things on in the second half. I don't have that confidence in the Cardinals at all, though. So right. I'm not going to say the division sucks, but I will say that maybe it sucks because we don't we don't necessarily know where the Rams are going. It doesn't look good, but they still have championship pedigree. Uh, the 49ers have been so up and down. So Exactly. I, I heard a little rumor that the Rams won the Super Bowl last year. So, I mean, it's so like, I just still, I still wouldn't <laughs> sleep on him, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, totally. A whole half of football, but they don't look good. There's no denying that. All right, one last question for you before we let you get out of here. If you had to, if you had to, Corbin, bet $10,000 on when the Seahawks season ends this year, what would you wager it on? It's probably not missing the playoffs. Uh, right now, I, I would safe. wager divisional round. Divisional round. Okay, so they're getting Which the playoff I Again, I can't believe, and I'm not a betting man, so you know anybody listening uh, probably don't healthy. listen to my advice. But, that's healthy. Um, that's where I, I would go divisional round right now. Uh, especially if they get a home game to open the playoffs. I right? It feels like the home field advantage has returned this year. Yes, it has. Yes, so, it has. Kudos to I, all I of you I listening. don't know what the biggest difference has been, but it just it, even in the press box, it, there's a different feel to it. Like, you know, you the just best tell thing, it's louder out there. The so, single best thing that was outside of this team's control, the single best thing that could have happened to this team, I truly believe, is to have week one at home against the Denver Broncos. I don't think you could, if they had opened that game up against the 49ers and lost by 20, like they did the following week, we have way different vibes going into the season, but all eyes were on it. It was the biggest story in sports that week. And for them to win like a night game. So everyone's all lubed up like that. I think set the tone and to see them win when that field goal missed, it was like, we're back as a home, as a home crowd, because Seattle's basically been a 500 team at home for like four years prior to this. Yep. I'm with you on divisional round. That, that was my answer too. And you know, if they get there, if they make the playoffs with 11, 12 wins and they win that first game at home, I mean, and that it, really, it's not gonna... all of this just leads to the biggest question. What do you do with number seven? I mean, hey, I, there it is. Yes. I, I told myself I wasn't going to talk weeks, about it this like, week. I, I'm looking at it from two perspectives. If I'm Geno Smith's age, I'm like, hell, I'm not signing anything until we get to free agency. Like, I'm going to force you to franchise tag me or hit free agency. But then from Seattle's perspective, I'm like, hey, Geno, like, you got your career jump-started here. You're in a perfect offense. We'll pay you. Let's do a three-year deal for $25 million or even $30 million per year. And, you know, maybe make all the guaranteed money on the first two years or whatever. You know, that would be so much more money than Gino has ever made in his career. So sure. I don't know if Gino would be willing to do that. I don't know if his agent would even consider it. I mean, I, like I said, if I'm his agent, I'm like, hell no, I'm See, going to free agency. I, I, okay. So I wonder about that because we've seen this before. We've seen quarterbacks who have been career backups come in and have a great year. We've seen it with Nick Foles. We've seen it with Case Keenum. Uh, I think Case Keenum went like 14 and two or something with the Vikings one year. Uh, we've seen it with Ryan Fitzpatrick. You know, there there's still a chance that Geno 
turns back into a pumpkin at some point. And so I, I wonder if that almost, to me, it almost maybe flips the script a little bit. I mean, obviously Gino's going to believe in himself and, and want to bet on himself, but you get a chance for a three-year contract in a place that you already know you can be successful where everyone loves you. I got to think that's actually probably pretty attractive if that I came before. I would think he wants to be here and it doesn't, that doesn't curtail you. It doesn't stop you from drafting a quarterback, but it, but what it does do is it makes it, you don't have to reach for one. So if you like Anthony Richardson from Florida, who I do not think is pro ready, but I think could be an absolute stud in the NFL. Totally. Anthony Richardson could fall to the back half of the first round or even in the second round, but you can draft him and you can have him learn behind Geno Smith. And, and if Geno keeps playing well, you don't have to necessarily ever play Anthony. I like that. It, It could be a Jordan love type situation. I mean, so Man, those extra draft picks give you so much more flexibility. They especially do. Especially well, when the guy replacing the quarterback that you got is playing better than that guy. Well, um, and that's the thing is like this is not a binary answer, right? Like, there's so much to factor there's so in. so many variables. Well, and there's opportunity cost on both sides. There, you know, if you commit to Geno for the next three years, two, three years, the opportunity cost is you're not drafting uh, a rookie quarterback right now. Or if you are, you are punting one or two of those cheap rookie uh, contract years, right? So there's the opportunity cost there. But if you don't re-sign Geno, Seattle's going to be picking pretty late in the first round with their pick. I still think Denver probably moves. I'm guessing that pick's going to be 12 to 14, somewhere in there. And so, you know, maybe... One of those can't miss guys isn't there. So yeah, maybe you are reaching on the quarterback there. If you keep Gino, the benefit is you get to use those picks on interior linemen, on pass rushers, on whatever you want that you feel this team needs. A, a bona fide third threat at wide receiver because uh, it's just D. Eskridge is not that, unfortunately. And so, you know, I, I'm i still in wait and see mode. I'm not committing to it. But if I woke up tomorrow and heard that Gino signed a three-year extension with the Seahawks, I'd be happy. Like that, I would have a positive feeling about that. Yeah, I think most fans at this point would. And like I said, I, I would be pushing for it right now. I just don't know that his agent, and I would not blame the agent at all if the agent's sure, like, sure. "No, I want to force you to franchise me," or you know, we're going to hit free agency and see what's out there. You know, so I. But maybe Gino doesn't view it that way too. Gino loves playing for Pete Carroll. So yeah, uh, he owes a lot to Pete Carroll for giving him this opportunity. You know, it's just, there's so many dynamics there. I think it would be really cool if Gino said, you know what? I'll do a three year, you know, 62 million or whatever. Sure. And doesn't go for what might be perceived as market value, but it's still a huge raise from what he's had before. He's like, Hey, now you guys can keep building around me and I can go make some more money in a couple of years. You know? Yeah, it, it, exactly. You know, a shorter contract gives him a chance to do it. Get again. some endorsement deals. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Of, Gino's going to be the one in Gillette. Gino's the man. Yeah. Hey, maybe Gino becomes the new Subway spokesperson. I was just going to say, <laughs> could you imagine if he cucked Russ and got the Subway deal on top of that? That would be listed on one of the reasons the Seahawks won the trade. Russell Russell got fired by Subway and Gino replaced him. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's great shit, man. And it's a, it's a wonderful problem to have to say – you know, we've got one of the highest rated passers in the NFL. Do we yeah. want to keep him? <laughs> you know, that's that's a great thing. I, I would say, you know, one you, last. You could see John Schneider even being like, you know what? I rolled the dice, get rid of Wilson. You know what? You're 32, going to be 33 next year. We played with house money. You know what? Drew Locke, you're up this year. And we're, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna draft a quarterback with Drew Locke getting re-signed on a one year prove a deal. Man, I, mean, I think I, I think I this team's think gonna, gonna be, happen, but if this team's gonna be too close to like to really it, contending. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I will say too. You know, if if this draft class, you know, the quarterbacks in this draft class are as good as they've been touted to be the last couple of years, it might not be the best year to go out and hit free agency because I think a lot of teams are gonna want to fill that spot with a rookie. So, so, you know, I, I I do think that it is lining up for Gino to stay in Seattle. And like I said, if I found that out tomorrow, maybe for the first time all season, you know, because that's how I frame the question. Do I want, do I want the Seahawks to resign Gino Smith? I think about if I wake up in the morning, open Twitter and, I see that Gino has signed an extension. How would I feel? Just make sure the, it's a verified account. Oh my God. Right. Account. Right. But like, you know, before this week I would have been like, huh, I hope this works out. 
and and now and it comes down to the three touchdown drives immediately after the pick six. That honestly is what has swung me to now. If I saw that, I'd be like, hell yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. So yeah, man, I'm I'm into it. I'm glad you brought it up before we got out of here because uh it's definitely been on the back of my mind. I'm sure it's been on the front of a lot of Seahawks uh, fans' minds as well. So thank you for bringing that up. Listen, man, I know it has been a long day of travel and work for you. So I do want to let you know how much we appreciate you taking the time to come in today. Before we get out of here, why don't you remind the folks listening where they can get more of your stuff? So you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Corbin Smith NFL. That's how you know it's the legitimate one. Any other fakes <laughs> out there are not going to have that tag. So at Corbin Smith NFL. Uh, you can find all my stuff on all Seahawks, all my articles. Uh, Locked on Seahawks, our five days a week podcast, sometimes six days a week. Uh, we're going crazy with that podcast. You can follow us, locked underscore Seahawks, or go to lockedonseahawks.com. It's a great podcast. For free. Yeah, Corbin, you do you do such a great job with that, man. And uh, everyone listening, if you haven't checked out Locked on Seahawks, make sure you do. Because, <laughs> I mean, if the last hour is showing you anything, it's this man knows what the fuck he's talking about. He's connected. And, uh, and he's frankly, the reason we love having him on the show is Corbin just sees things that I don't see. And, uh, and, and, and it's just great to get his perspective as always. You can find us on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J A C S O N. Mike is it at Mike Barwin and the show itself is at cigar thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at cigar thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks cigar thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave us a quick review. Everyone who's out there listening, thank you so much for your continued support of the show. We're now over a hundred five-star ratings on Apple, which is incredible, and just over a year doing the show. Please know that by doing that, as well as sharing the show on social media and with your friends, it means more to Mike and I than we can adequately express here. We will be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Oh, 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 o